0: Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to writer Erica L. Sanchez about her new memoir, Crying in the Bathroom, which details among other things, how Lisa Simpson became an early feminist hero. And then speaking of figures in pop culture, we're gonna to talk to Sam Sanders. Sam is the host of Intuit, which is an entire weekly podcast about pop culture. You might also remember Sam from his days as the host of NPR's It's Been a Minute. Uh, We're going to talk to him about his Pentecostal upbringing, which meant he had to hide some of his love of pop culture, and what public radio ended up meaning to him as a young gay person growing up in the South. Then we're going to hear some music from one of our favorites, John Craigie. He's definitely one of the funniest musicians we know, and most musical funny people. It's going to be a great show. It all gets started right after this. Hello, Elena. Hello, Luke. Very formal start to the show this week. Are you ready, my colleague, to play a round of station location identification examination?
3: How can I but not answer in the affirmative?
0: This is where I'm going to quiz Elena about a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio, and you've got to try to guess where I am talking about. All right, uh, here is clue number one. This city has celebrated eeyore's birthday every year since 1963 throwing a festival in honor of the beloved character from the winnie the pooh books
3: i feel like i lived in this place (laughs) so it's like
0: (laughs) you have a memory of attending this festival
3: or hearing on the radio about it so that narrows it down to about six places
0: let me give you a couple of other hints which i think will narrow it down Several movies have been filmed here, including Office Space, Miss Congeniality, Spy Kids, and one of the Kill Bill movies.
3: Well, I did not know that Miss Congeniality was filmed in Austin, Texas.
0: Exactly right. Austin, Texas, where we are on the radio on K-U-T.
3: Oh, yeah, K-U-T, one of the great American radio stations. John Ailey forever.
0: Absolutely. Shout out to everyone listening all over the country, including... Down there in Austin, Texas. All right, should we get to the show? Let's do it. Take it away. From
3: PRX, it's LiveWire. This week, podcaster Sam Sanders.
2: I love to sit in that space of bad TV a lot. And when it's really bad, I want to read everything about it.
3: Writer Erica L. Sanchez.
4: I feel like so much of my writing comes from that place of being misunderstood and having a lot of cultural conflicts within my family because I I was born weird.
3: With music from John Craigie, I'm your announcer Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank
0: you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in to Livewire this week. We've got a great show in store for you. We asked the Livewire listeners a question uh, because we're going to be talking to Sam Sanders, who hosts a really great podcast about pop culture. We asked the listeners, What's a pop culture moment that lives in your head rent free? And we're going to hear the answer to that question coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, we got to kick things off like we always do with the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder that there is, in fact, some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news that you heard all week?
3: Insect news. Okay. That's like my fifth favorite kind of news. <laughs> you know, like we're always on the lookout for ways to bring pollinators back into the planet's existence and back into our lives because they're cool. And several European cities have come up with a pretty cool way to do this. Uh, I think it started in Utrecht, but uh, sort of trickled into the UK. Cities like Oxford, Glasgow, and Scotland, even uh, Derby up in Ireland, have all started planting pollinator gardens on the roofs of bus shelters. So, you know, like you wait for a bus, it's like a pretty simple structure. It usually has like that kind of flat rooftop. They... Plant uh, native plant species that butterflies and bees like. And because it's the UK, the native species have great names like kidney vetch and self heal and wild marjoram. Oh my gosh, (laughs) that's the name of
0: the plants?
3: Yeah, these are the kinds. I mean, obviously, maybe in Utrecht the plants are different, mm-hmm. and if we, you know, happen to pick up this practice here in North America, which I hope we do, we would have different native plants uh, that we would use. But those are the names of the the most attractive plants to bees, I suppose, over there in Blighty. But it's really, I mean, it's a great practice. It's actually kind of good for the environment in more ways than you would assume, in that. The gardens, the rooftop gardens collect rainwater and they also provide uh, more insulated shade. So they keep the urban heat rise of paved areas even cooler. So I really hope we get stuff started here to make that happen. I think it's a great
1: idea.
0: Anything you can do to create a little bit more organic life within the context of a place that's mostly, what is it called, impermeable surfaces. Anything you can do to green it up is good.
3: In Corvallis, they have little planters on either side of the public trash cans, so maybe – we don't have a bunch of bus shelters. I think we maybe have 10 total, but uh, maybe I should get on the horn and call my local representative and see if – maybe I'll just show up there with a bunch of dirt and see what happens.
0: (laughs) I like that, a little community activism on your part. You're talking about insects on the show this week, and I'm talking about beta fishes, because the best news that I saw comes by way of Tampa, Florida, where – back in the, the spring back in may a, a freshman from the university of tampa a young person named kira Rumfola was flying back home to long island from tampa because she's been going to college down in tampa and she shows up at the airport and she's all excited to go home for the summer and see her family and all of that but she's also got her beta fish theo in tow on the plane uh well she was trying to get on the plane she's in the airport and she gets to the Southwest Airlines counter, and one of the folks who works for Southwest Airlines notices that she has this fish, Theo, who's described as deep blue and purple, very vivid, very colorful. This agent's name was Ismail Lazo. And Ismail said, I have some bad news. You cannot bring a fish on a Southwest Airlines flight. Like, apparently, you're allowed to bring a small dog and a cat, but you cannot That's bring it. fish. That's it. Peacock
3: ruined things for everyone.
0: Service fish is yet to be a category, I believe, at least for Southwest Airlines. And so poor Kira was sort of apoplectic because all of her friends had already gone home from college. And so there was nobody... And she's at the airport. She's ready to go. But she's, like, really bonded with this fish Theo. Theo likes to sit in his bowl... On the kitchen countertop. And when she does the dishes, she says, he swims around the bowl really fast. It's like <laughs> entertainment for him to watch her do the dishes. And she's like, really has a strong emotional connection to this little beta fish. So uh, Ismail, being just a problem solver by nature, apparently says, okay, look, here's what I could do for you. I could just take care of the fish for the next four months. Me and my fiance, we've got room. We'll just like watch your fish. And then when you come back from Long Island to Tampa, you can pick the fish up. Oh, my gosh. And so that's exactly what happened. They exchange numbers. He takes Theo back to his place with his fiance. As soon as Kira lands in Long Island, she's texting. How is Theo doing? And they're like, he's doing great. Although we're on our way to the store to get him a slightly bigger bowl. Just wanted to make sure he had plenty of room. And they also really started to become connected to this little beta fish. He also would like to watch them do the dishes and make their dinners and stuff. <laughs> and so they just had a great summer watching Theo. And then recently, Kira returned to Tampa for her second year of university and uh, went over to their house and picked Theo up.
3: I was afraid that this was going to end up in some kind of beta fish custody fight.
0: No. when they interviewed Ismail about this he said exactly what I was thinking which was he was like it was fun to have the fish at our house but I was very relieved when she came and got it because I was worried the fish something was going to happen to the fish on our watch you know these things don't live forever no and like you know if somebody's fish you know expires due to natural causes on your watch you feel kind of bad so Theo is now back with Kira uh, with her and her roommates and is back to just living the life and everybody seems to be doing just fine. So that right there, a little fish babysitting, is the best news that I saw all week. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. Erica L. Sanchez, Burst onto the literary scene with her debut novel, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which was published back in 2017. It was a New York Times bestseller and a National Book Award finalist. That's now being made into a film, by the way, directed by America Ferreira. More recently, Erica is out with a critically acclaimed memoir in essays titled Crying in the Bathroom about her life growing up near Chicago as the child of Mexican immigrants, and her journey to create a stable, fulfilling adult life for herself while also dealing with mental health issues. Erica L. Sanchez, welcome to LiveWire. Thank you so much. Uh, this is such a fascinating book because every time I thought it was one kind of book, it sort of shifts into another mode or brings in some some kind of an element that I'm not expecting. I want to start, though, kind of uh, in your younger childhood, you grew up in Cicero, Illinois, kind of outside of Chicago. And your parents worked in factories there. I'm wondering, do you feel like you sort of made sense to them, the kind of kid that you were in the world? <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, I feel like so much of my writing comes from that place of being misunderstood and, you know, um, having a lot of cultural conflicts within my family because
0: I I was born weird, <laughs> What do you think the expectations were for you? Um, You wrote a very successful novel, Uh, I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. What do you think being the perfect Mexican daughter would have looked like in your family?
4: Well, for me, it meant being a, a girl who liked to stay at home, who didn't like to go out and explore, a girl who lived with her parents until marriage, someone who cooked and cleaned, In the traditional ways, um, who was very family-oriented, submissive, I would say, Mm. docile, perhaps.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So not Lisa Simpson, but more depressed, which is how you describe yourself in the book. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) It's funny. I feel like I talked to more people who found the TV show The Simpsons to be some kind of lifeline. Like I'm 46 if they're my age and they grew up watching it in like the 90s. How big of a deal was The Simpsons in your life? It was a huge deal. It was sometimes the only times
4: that I would laugh and feel joy because I just carried a lot. I was very, very depressed. And so when I watched The Simpsons, I just forgot about everything and, and reveled in the absurdity of it all. And I I love that Lisa Simpson was so outspoken and so feminist. And she was my actual introduction to feminism. Mm.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Speaking of, um, of cultural influences, I was wondering what your experience was consuming media as a brown child in America.
4: I feel like the world doesn't really see us. We don't exist. We're not really portrayed in any sort of media we're not in a lot of books it felt very lonely to you know be brown and to belong to this culture um my parents culture and and my culture too but also try to belong to American culture it was just Mm -hmm. this really confusing state and I I I think that was part of the reason that I started to write is because I needed to find a place for myself because I felt like I had no place. And so that's what, you know, began my writing career, I suppose, just that feeling of alienation and feeling like I don't matter.
0: We're talking to Erica L. Sanchez here on LiveWire about uh, her latest book, Crying in the Bathroom. Uh, We have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be back in just a moment. what we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you.
1: Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. z pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zebiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Z your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to Zbiotics.com/slash. LiveWire to get fifteen percent off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with one hundred percent money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code LiveWire at checkout for fifteen percent off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
0: Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Erica L. Sanchez about her memoir, Crying in the Bathroom. Um, This book goes into really great detail about a time in your life when you were dealing with what you thought was a yeast infection for (laughs) like multiple years. Um, And then also uh, very – some real personal issues involving your anatomy – Uh, Mm -hmm. Was that uh, challenging to write about or to put in a book that thousands and thousands of people are going to see?
4: I I mean, there have been times that I have felt a little strange about it. But then I think, first, vaginas are not dirty. They're not gross. Um, I want to really own that. And I want to write also for other women who have experienced similar traumas in their bodies in that way and so you know I write to heal myself but also hopefully to heal others along the way yeah it was I guess risky but I've always been writing about my vagina since I was like 14 years old so it's it's nothing new yeah I've been very feminist for very for a very long time
0: (laughs) One of the things too that's really great about this book is it almost reads in part like a travel log because like you love traveling so much and you just do this really amazing job of describing really vividly just the feeling of being on a street somewhere in Spain or Portugal or wherever it is you might be traveling. You also write about something that I thought I was the only person who particularly loved which is taking a walk at Twilight and smelling what everybody's cooking.
4: Yeah. It's an amazing experience. I highly recommend. Uh, And then you go home hungry and you just
0: eat a nice dinner. It's a beautiful thing. I will like take a walk to try to figure out what I want to have for dinner because I will smell what everybody else is doing and it'll start to (laughs) give me some like thoughts.
4: (laughs) Uh, That's an interesting idea. I've never done that.
0: Where do you think you got your wanderlust from? And also do you feel, was it a, a bit of a coping mechanism based on the depression that you were dealing with?
4: Yeah, I think it was definitely partly the fact that I felt really anxious a lot of the time. I felt depressed. I I wanted to be elsewhere, you know, just to escape myself, but I never could. And so that was the funny part. And and also, I really loved to see the world. I loved to see new things and meet new people and be influenced and I just had this very expansive sort of spirit that, you know, didn't really make a lot of sense because I was poor. And so how were you going to travel when you're poor? It's just very difficult. And so I had to figure out ways to do that.
0: Eventually, it's uh, revealed or you're diagnosed uh, with bipolar 2, something that you had thought and everyone else had thought had been depression. Have you found uh, effective ways to try to manage that? I mean, you write in this book about being hospitalized and having a really, really difficult time um, getting through your day. Are you in a better place now or is this just something that you'll need to manage? Well, I
4: think that the procedure, the ECT, was really life-saving for me because it allowed me to feel like myself again. And I, I, I feel like I... I was really frightened uh, during that time to mm-hmm. not be who I was again. And so that jump started. I don't know how it works. The science of it is a
0: mystery to me, but. Well, can whatever, we also just mention for folks that I know that's uh, electroconvulsive therapy?
5: Right. Something yes. that I
0: think is called shock treatment, pejoratively, like in the past. But so you actually had that procedure. What, is that, what does that feel like? And what did it do for your brain, as far as you can tell?
4: It made me able to function. It, it wasn't painful. It wasn't coercive. Like, it gets a bad rap because of its history, right? But, um, I mean, all of this was completely consensual. Um, I, I wanted this procedure. And I felt like it was the only way to get out of this hole that I was in. And so it sort of reignited something in my brain. It's hard to really explain how that came to be. But I felt different. I felt like I could experience joy. I could you know, talk to friends, I could eat food, you know, like mm. even the simplest things were very, very difficult when I was depressed.
0: And that shifted. Uh, one of the things about this book is every time it goes into a really serious subject matter and you start to think, okay, well now we're now we're being serious. You'll just have a line like you write about traveling solo through Europe just trying to find some peen. that like makes me laugh out loud was that intentional of like how you wanted the rhythm of the book to be in terms of the lightness with also the more serious parts of it
4: it wasn't intentional in that I I really thought deeply about it because that's just who I am I can't go too long without cracking a joke Mm -hmm. and I don't want the reader to go too long without feeling some light Mm -hmm. you know like It's absurd to be alive. It's absurd to be human. (laughs) Let's laugh about it. You know, I had fun writing those lines. I had fun making myself laugh. And so (laughs) it's great to hear.
0: Uh, We're talking to Erica L. Sanchez about her memoir, Crying in the Bathroom. This book ends with like a really beautiful letter kind of to your daughter. I'm just wondering what it's like for you to be generating books and things, uh, poetry Out into the world, the kind of stuff that maybe you would have really wanted to have seen when you were a young brown girl growing up in America. Like to get to be creating the stuff that you wish you would have had. What's that feel like for you?
4: I feel like a great amount of responsibility in a sense where I know a lot of people, a lot of young women in particular uh look up to me they they love my work they tell me so you know and it's it's beautiful I, i'm so grateful so i just try to be very conscious of that and and to be grateful for it and also to understand like what what that actually means that my words are are very important to them and so mm. It's it's a little daunting at times like now what do I write you
0: know <laughs> <laughs> right how about an episode of the Simpsons mm. they take guest writers
4: I wish I wish I could be on the Simpsons that would be
3: my dream come true <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well this is a really incredible book It's Crying in the Bathroom by Erica L Sanchez it's a memoir Erica thanks so much for coming on Livewire Thank you so much That was Erica L Sanchez right here on Livewire Her memoir, Crying in the Bathroom, is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Richard Helzer of Beaverton, Oregon, and Martin Jones of Austin, Texas. By the way, Martin is also a member of the LiveWire board. Richard and Martin are part of the LiveWire member community, and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month which we're very, very thankful for because it's the only way that we can keep doing the show. So, Richard and Martin, a big thank you for keeping LiveWire going. This is LiveWire. As we do each week, we ask our listeners a question because we're going to be talking to the great Sam Sanders about pop culture, we asked our listeners, what is a pop culture moment that lives in your head rent-free? And Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing?
3: How about this one from Allie? Allie can't stop thinking about J-Lo's green dress on the red carpet. We can never seem to get away from that dress. And that that is true because I don't know when she wore that. It was like 20 years ago. But then... One of the two guys who make South Park ended up wearing it a couple years later. Wait,
0: was that the year that those guys took some very, very powerful hallucinogens and then showed up at the Oscars? Trey I Trey Parker know. and Matt Stone. I believe there's a whole <laughs> subplot.
3: Well, that wasn't the only place where that dress ended up, right? Like, Because I think last year, it's, it's Versace is the dress. J-Lo, who is now in her 50s and making all women in their 40s mad, she wore the exact same dress in a fashion show. And then my favorite television show of all time, RuPaul's Drag Race, on its most recent season, somehow one of the queens, Carrie Colby, got a hold of that dress and wore it on the runway. It's like a burp. (laughs) It just keeps repeating and repeating and repeating.
0: That is incredible. I had no idea how large that loomed in the pop culture, but you were like the perfect person to be selecting these responses because it sounds like that dress is also a big deal for you.
3: Well, me and Allie must be tuned into the same
0: channels. Yeah. What's some other moment of pop culture that's just been kind of living in someone's head?
3: Katie brought up that time in 2020 when Gal Gadot and other celebrities sang Imagine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I totally understand the spirit with which that was intended, which was to put something together that was comforting to people in some way. But I don't know if I can remember something that's had more the opposite effect Of what they were going for. This was, of course, right at the beginning of the pandemic. We were all very terrified and stuck at home and just trying to live day to day. And then you had all of these mega-famous, mega-beautiful celebrities singing into their iPhones. And it did did not have the intended effect. (laughs) Okay, what's uh, one more bit of pop culture that's been living in someone's head rent-free?
3: Okay, Drew has got my number on this one. Drew says... Beyonce going solo slash Beyonce doing lemonade slash (laughs) Beyonce doing anything. And that is totally true. Remember when she made that music video in the Louvre?
0: Yes.
3: (laughs) It was like, what? Remember the homecoming Coachella headlining special? Ah, Remember the new thing, Break My Soul, where she talks about quiet quitting and now everybody's doing it?
0: (laughs) It sounds like this could be summed up as Beyonce dot, 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 anything. That Beyonce does as being Beyonce being alive, that, Beyonce <laughs> taking an air on planet Earth, lives rent free in everyone's head, the Drews and Elena's. All right. Well, speaking of Beyonce, that's actually one of the subjects of Sam Sanders' great podcast "Into It" from New York Magazine and Vulture. You may also know Sam from his time hosting NPR's show "It's Been a Minute," which he did for five years. These days, he not only hosts "Into It" but also "Vibe Check." a show that he co-hosts with Saeed Jones and Zach Stafford, where they talk about what's going on in the news and pop culture. We have been fans of Sam's for years and are so excited to welcome him to LiveWire. Sam Sanders, welcome to the show.
2: It is so good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I, I got to tell you, um, into it, your podcast from New York Magazine and Vulture is one of my very favorite podcast right now. Like, I just, oh my goodness, it's an absolute delight to listen to. And I will admit that as a 46 year old whose only connection to pop culture is things that burble up on TikTok, I don't even know all the things that are being referenced, but it's a delight to listen to you and your guests talk about it.
2: I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It has been a joy putting this show together. It's been out in the world, gosh, maybe almost two months now, but I cannot take credit for all of the knowledge of internet culture. I am uh, a seasoned 38 years old at this point, which means a lot of days I consume a lot of my TikToks through Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a whole team of folks at Vulture who help me out, and I want to specifically shout out our operations manager, Gabby Grossman. She knows the internet backwards and forwards, and she is our resident Kardashian expert. Uh, (laughs) We have a chat on the show this week all about the metaphysics and meaning and philosophy of Kim Kardashian and like that's more gobby than me so it's a team effort and I'm in the same boat as you I feel my generation us millennials slowly aging out and I will not go quietly into the night <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, for folks that haven't had a chance to hear it yet, it's this really great deep dive on pop culture, which, uh, of course, also involves what the larger cultural implications are. You did a really great episode about the kind of business savvy of Beyonce, not just the music side, but the actual business person head that she has. But you must find yourself in a position where some of the younger staffers are bringing you information and things from the Internet where you have to then, would you have to try to get outside of your brain that's a little older and a little more Abe Simpson, old man yells at cloud? Like, how do you how do you tell yourself that they know what they're talking about if it doesn't necessarily resonate for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm always like, send me the receipts. I need to see this TikTok <laughs> person. Are they a big deal? Can they do interviews? Can they talk on the internet? Can they talk on a microphone? Are there videos of them actually having a conversation? Uh, but I usually trust them. But yeah, it's a process. It's a journey. It is funny, though, to think that like both of you and I can probably agree working in public radio for a long time helps you get really good at taking things that you might not know about and then making them digestible for the masses. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, I'm curious about your childhood. You grew up in Texas. Were you really pop culture obsessed even as a kid?
2: Secretly. You know, it's 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 quite ironic that I am now hosting this show for Vulture, probably Pop Culture Central online, because growing up, I was raised severe Pentecostal, and we really weren't allowed to access what was called the secular world.
0: I'm with S- you, man. Oh, really? Were you also oh, a yeah. Christian kid? Oh, yeah. Evangelical. And uh, was, pretty much everything was considered worldly. I had a mm-hmm. Christian rap music tape that my dad thought the beat was defiant even though the lyrics were about Jesus. I mean, so I very much feel you on that kind of childhood.
2: Oh yeah. To give you a sense of how severe it was. And I love my church and I love my family and all that. But like at one point in our youth, some of the kids in the church wanted to like put together a song to sing on Sunday and we were like doing a demo run in front of some of the older folks in the church. And we got a talking to because we snapped our fingers. Christians don't snap. The wow! <laughs> it was like you better not snap on this in this pulpit on Sunday morning. How dare you?
0: <laughs> so you had to be really undercover with the worldly pop culture that you were consuming.
2: Oh yeah, it was so undercover. So my mother was the church organist at our Pentecostal church. So we were there whenever the doors of the church were open. And we, as a rule, weren't allowed to really consume any music that was not Christian or gospel. And we really couldn't watch too much TV because it was too, too risque. And we couldn't like go to the movies or go to school dances. But what I would do, because I was a music head and I would like sneak as a kid and like watch MTV and VH1 behind the music. My way to get music to listen to was when my mother would take my brother and I to the mall. My dad never went. He stayed home. He was napping. Uh, (laughs) My mother would go shop at, like, Lane Bryant or August Max Woman, and I would sneak over to Sam Goody or, like, Hastings, and I would buy CDs, and I would put them in the back of my underwear, and I would bring them home. And the little Walkman that my parents assumed I only listened to gospel music on, I would take it into the bathroom and for hours listen to, like, the— pop music and R&B of my youth and I'm mm. sure my mother and father thought I was either severely constipated or like nonstop <laughs> masturbating but that's how I got my music education <laughs> so to now have a show where I get to get paid to talk about popular culture how ironic I think the Lord loves that
0: <laughs> um how'd you get into radio
2: oh gosh I remember exactly what it was. And it's funny, it was also kind of tied to church. You probably know this artist if you're an evangelical or former evangelical. We grew up listening to the music of Carlton Pearson. Uh, He was Uh a prominent evangelical minister, an alum of the crazy conservative Christian university, Oral Roberts University and his church, it was called Azusa Street Something. They had a run of pretty good gospel albums that my mother loved and I loved them too. And I remember just in my youth hearing him and his music and his choir and his church. Um, Growing up, if my mother was driving, we only listened to gospel music. If my father was driving, it was only news radio. But when I began to drive my parents around, I got to choose the station. And I'll never forget driving my mother to church one Wednesday night, we settled upon an episode of This American Life that was airing at the time, all about the story of this evangelical minister, Carlton Pearson, leaving the church because he stopped believing in hell and thought that it wasn't a sin to be gay. And my mind was blown. I didn't think that like what I thought was news radio and what I saw as this world of gospel could Happened together. And it happened together beautifully, you know, with Ira Glass as a narrator. And I was hooked ever since then. And I would just only listen to NPR when I was driving. And I got my mother hooked on it, too. Well, not hooked. She endured it. But that was it. It was <laughs> it was that episode of This American Life, which I heard when I was probably like, gosh, between 18 and 20.
0: We're talking to Sam Sanders. He is the host of Intuit from Vulture in New York Magazine and also one of the co hosts of Vibe Check, which he hosts with Saeed Jones, friend of Livewire and delightful human being, and also Zach Stafford. Um, Did you know you were gay at the time when you were listening to that This American Life piece as a teen? Oh
2: my God, I knew I was gay. Yeah, I knew I was gay. I remember my first crush was on this other kid in like third grade. I knew I was gay back then. I think I needed or had to perform straightness up until I was like not at home and not in Texas and could like pay my own way but yeah I knew I always knew
0: well I because I'm just wondering that must have been an intense experience for you to be in the car listening to someone talk about uh, like leaving the evangelical movement because they did not personally believe being gay was a sin and you're this closeted kid in Texas and you're sitting in the car next to your mom I mean were you did you think she was on to you she was always on to me (laughs) (laughs) My mother's always thought to me. Yeah,
2: there was this wonderful, not wonderful, but like admirable acceptance from my family and my church, even as they knew I was a very, very gay kid. I was never bullied at church. I was never kicked out of the church. And everyone was kind of like, oh, yeah, we see how this one might work out. Um, I'll never forget before I came out, my mother and I, I don't know how it happened. We watched Brokeback Mountain together. And I knew it was gay, but I didn't know it was going to go that gay. And we're watching the movie, and I'm like, she's going to read me the riot act once this film is over. She's going to be like, what the hell did you bring into my house? The movie ends, and my Pentecostal church organist mother looks at me, eyes full of tears, Mm. and she says, I just don't know why they can't be together. And I was like, what? I just said, me too, girl. But I knew (laughs) that at some point when I came out, she'd be okay with it, and she was.
0: Wow. I'm really happy for you about that because it can go so differently for a it lot of people. It can so differently. Um, I, I love pop culture, but I also sometimes feel a little um, insecure about my love of pop culture because, you know, there's a war in Ukraine and there are so many scholarly articles to be read about the world. And I'm just like, you know, really watching 13 different camera angles of if uh, Harry Styles <laughs> actually did spit on Chris Pine. Like, how... Ha- What's your what is your feeling uh, about the kind of legitimacy of pop culture as as something that we study and talk about?
2: Yeah, I mean, even if you don't want to just like love it because it's culture, you can respect it because it's a multi billion dollar industry. You know, the creation of popular culture and the entertainment industry itself employs hundreds thousands millions of people across the world it is their livelihood it is worth talking about right you know we cover the economy it's part of the economy for Mm -hmm. one uh and for two popular culture and entertainment gives us the script on how we perform ourselves it tells us how to be it gives us these templates and archetypes and sometimes stereotypes of how to inhabit our bodies and our lives and our communities i didn't know how to be gay growing up Rocky Horror Picture Show and Fame and VH1 taught me how to even imagine that world, right? And so I think, especially for people from marginalized backgrounds, it's uh, it, it's the creation of possibility models that is actually really important uh, to young people's self-esteem and to their growth as fully realized individuals. Um, and then on top of that, when I think of the current news market, we have more than enough journalists covering breaking news, don't we? Yeah, we do. We don't have enough journalists thinking smartly and creatively about the ways pop culture affects all of our lives and connecting those dots. When I even think about the movement for black lives and the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd and pushes for criminal justice reform, our notions of the police and what the police should mean in everyday life are informed by shows like Cops and Paw Patrol. Those things Mm -hmm. tell us how to think about law enforcement writ large. You can't have a conversation about changing the role of law enforcement in this country without addressing that messaging and what it means, right? So it's all connected. And that's just one example.
0: I just realized something, Sam. Somebody is in their car right now and they're like, oh, sweet. It's Been a Minute is on. Yeah. I'm wondering, I mean, that is, that's, and that show continues and it's still really great, but you, you walked away from that very, very successful thing, which is hard to do these days in public radio, which is to create a hit show. Um, did you just want to be able to say things like, Ben Affleck is dead behind the eyes, which I heard you recently say on <laughs> an older episode of Intuit. Like, did you just want the freedom of, of not being on a NPR show?
2: There are a few things going on. I mean, I think in general, I didn't expect to do one show forever. And I think what had quickly happened once the show became successful, I think, you know, we got on, on over 400 public radio stations. You know, you realize the NPR model of success is like, if you make a thing that works, you keep it going. They kept Car Talk on the air even after one of them died. And no shade on that. I love Car Talk. But I wanted, and I've always wanted a career for myself where I'm trying on new hats every few years. I just do, right? And so honestly, doing that show for, for four plus almost five years was maybe a bit longer than I would have even expected myself to do it. Hmm. Um, So that was part of it too. I wanted to just have space to do new things. I also think that like one of the more interesting challenges of talking about pop culture and the really sometimes recent cultural references is that it's sometimes harder to make it mass market. You know, when you're doing news on the radio There's a certain baseline of language that everyone is kind of conversant in as news consumers. Newscasts make sense to everybody, right? But unpacking a meme Mm. is harder. And a lot of times it felt like with It's Been a Minute, there was a conversation I would have had if it were only a podcast. And there was a conversation I would have had if it were only a radio show. Mm -hmm. And there was a conversation I would have had If it was both, which was what the show is, you know, and I enjoyed having that kind of conversation, but I really wanted to scratch the itch of seeing what it would be like to talk about popular culture for just a self
0: selecting audience. It gives you a different kind of freedom. Do you, um, do you do other things to sort of nourish your soul? Like if you get done just watching a lot of Love Island or some something that's very uh entertaining but maybe can leave you with a bit of a sort of saccharine taste in your mouth maybe do you go meditate or like uh read kierkegaard or something like do you refill yourself with stuff that's not love island
2: no i mean i i love to sit in that space of bad tv a lot like i watch good Mm -hmm. tv and movies but i watch a lot of bad stuff and when it's really bad i want to read everything about it I want to read every review. I want to read every recap. I want to discuss it with s- several group chats or online. I don't need a break from that. I want to, I, I <laughs> want to swim in that water.
0: You have a great segment towards the end of, uh, of Intuit, uh, Culture Geist yeah um, which is a genius name where people talk about something that is just kind of you know they're they're thinking about haunting in pop them. culture yeah. that week what's haunting yeah what's haunting them we ask our live wire listeners a question every week and we asked a question of our listeners that's sort of in that neighborhood the the question is what is a pop culture moment that lives in your head as uh, as the young people Stop saying months ago. Rent free. <laughs> rent free. What is, free. A, what is a, a? And I wanted to ask you that question, Sam Sanders. What's a? What's a piece of pop culture that lives in your head? Rent free.
2: Yeah, yeah. I would say my culture guys this week, or uh, the thing I just can't get over this week. The thing that I'm stuck on, whatever we want to call it. It is whatever's happening with Mark Wahlberg's career. Have you noticed he's in way too many Netflix films right now?
0: Here's what I can tell you, Sam. I was on a flight from Tennessee last week, and the guy next to me was watching some kind of heavily Catholic film with Mark Wahlberg Father and... Father Stu. Father Stu. Mark Wahlberg and, um, <laughs> and Mel Gibson in it. And the guy on the plane next to me was sobbing. Oh, my God. And I was ready to move aisles. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on with Mark Wahlberg What I watched? I was just seeing it without the sound.
2: Yeah, this is what's crazy. So I... And on Netflix several times a week, even though it's no longer my favorite streamer. But I've gotten like pushes from Netflix to watch not one, but two Mark Wahlberg movies like this week and last week. One with Kevin Hart, the other where he plays a Catholic priest named Father Stu. I think there's been some others. It feels like he's making too many movies. And then on top of that, I keep seeing ads on Twitter to download this Catholic prayer app he's launched where you can like pray the rosary with mark Wahlberg, and that got me interested i was like why is this man working so hard and stuff that isn't at all boosting his signal i googled some more he also has a used car dealership in columbus ohio i have so many questions about mark Wahlberg's career right now namely does he owe somebody a lot of money what's going on here That's what I'm obsessed with. I don't think I like any of the stuff, but I want to know what's the rationale behind his weird performance of Mark Wahlberg in this moment. And He also, I think, he also has that burger chain Wahlberger. Is that him or his brother
0: Donnie? This
2: man is working too hard, and I have questions about it.
0: Yeah, well, those questions get answered each week on Intuit, Sam Sanders' podcast over from Vulture in New York Magazine, and also you can catch him on Vibe Check with Saeed Jones and Zach Stafford. Sam, um, I it breaks my heart to tell all of the people listening that this is actually live wire and not. It's been a minute, oh my um, goodness. but uh, we are huge fans of yours. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today.
2: Oh man. It is so fun to be here. I'm a huge fan of yours as well. This was delightful. Thank you.
0: That was Sam Sanders right here on Livewire. Sam is the host of the podcast into it as well as vibe check, which he co-hosts with Saeed Jones and Zach Stafford. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We have got to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we will hear music from John Craigie. Stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one of a kind handcrafted tea blends like Cinnamon Churro Chai and Blueberry Cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Live Wire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Our musical guest this week has been called the love child of John Prine and Mitch Hedberg. He's played with Jack Johnson. He's gotten fan mail from Chuck Norris. Uh, He describes his style as humorous stories mixed with serious folk. And his latest studio album, Mermaid Salt, which I have absolutely been loving since it came out, is available now. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with John Craigie recorded earlier this year in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. What song are we going to hear this time around?
5: I'll do one off the new record now. Okay,
0: yeah, what's it called? Uh,
5: This is called Drown Me. One thing I think that I'm getting worse at is the whole human interaction part of my job. If you ever meet me in person, I apologize. Um... (laughs) I mean, I was always awkward before, but I just, it's gotten more awkward now that I'm back into the world. I was uh, just doing this um, festival. It was this cruise called Kayamo in Florida. Yeah, It was weird because uh, it was at sea and I don't normally perform at sea. I would say roughly 100% of my shows are on dry land. (laughs) but you're on this boat with all the, all the audience members and they're very sweet, but they're very intense. And so, you, so people would come up to me and then they would say, they would say, are you John Craigie? And then I would say, I don't know. She's <laughs> like, not a good answer. I'm just getting bad at it. I'm, I was with a friend recently and we were walking and some a stranger came up in and said, hey, has anyone ever told you that you look like John Craigie? And I said, no. And then he said, do you know who that is? And I said, yes. And he said, do you think you look like him? And I said, yeah. And then my friend was like, dude, This is John Craigie. And the guy was like, why didn't you just say that in the first place?
6: (laughs) This air is tainted, I don't want another breath. Wrap your legs around me till I'm almost Drown me, baby, drown me, baby. I wasn't using my lungs for any good anyway. Them pretty boys, they couldn't handle your love. They all agree you're pretty bossy forward sub. Drown me, baby, drown me, baby. I wasn't using my lungs for any good anyway. I gave them sugar, babe. I kept the salt. Your little anchor ain't as heavy as you thought Stepdaddy wasn't a man, he was a cigarette This world smoked him down till there was nothing left Drain me baby, drain me baby i wasn't spending my cash on any good anyway he smacked your mama up. she came back with the gun karma's a bitch the man to get the job done drain me baby drain me baby i wasn't spending my cash on any good anyway you look stuck girl don't let the boat sink your little anchor ain't as heavy as you Isn't that nice They want me back I'm nice But I ain't that nice Break me baby Break me baby I wasn't using my heart for any good anyway First of all, child, I never said I was a saint Second of all, don't you gotta be dead to be a saint Break me, baby, break me, baby I wasn't using my heart for any good anyway Last time I checked, girl, we're both still breathing Your little anchor ain't as heavy as yours
0: That was John Craigie right here on LiveWire. His latest album, Mermaid Salt, is available now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show, which, by the way, was our first show back in front of a live audience since the pandemic started, so it was a really big deal for us. Tom Sharpling will be on the program. He, of course, has been hosting the best show for the last 18 years. It's a call-in radio show. He was also a writer and the executive producer of the TV show Monk, and he's got a memoir out which chronicles his struggles, his triumphs, and his, I would say, surprisingly deep dislike for Billy Joel. Uh, we're also going to hear some hilarious comedy from one of our favorite comedians, El Sheki And we're also going to hear some music from the super cool Oregon band, Maita. And as always, we're going to be looking to get your response to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the wire listeners for next week's show?
3: Next week's question is, what's a controversial musical opinion that you have?
0: Okay. I can see that. Um, Boy, I've got a few. I don't, you know, we're really trying to not yuck anyone's yum now on the show. Mm -hmm. I learned that from you, by the way. It's like my new favorite phrase. But uh, yeah, I've got some hot takes. Maybe we'll lay a few of them on the listeners next week. If you would like to respond to that question, a controversial musical opinion that you have, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio pretty much everywhere. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of LiveWire. A huge thanks to our guests, Sam Sanders, Erica L. Sanchez, and John Craigie. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines.
3: Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tanvi Kumar. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake.
0: Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Richard Helzer of Beaverton, Oregon, and Martin Jones of Austin, Texas. Martin is also a member of our LiveWire board. Thanks, Martin. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank, Burlina Passarello, and the whole LiveWire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear LiveWire, When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much. If you've left a review and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.